This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your site for the purest, science quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Monica, I got shorts. Do you have them in every color? I have them in every single color. Well, I got nunchucks, so I win. Well, I got Scarface on repeat. Damn it. <laughs> you know what I do need? I need those My Little Pony ski mask. I really want that. Oh, man. That's what I want. <laughs> Put that on my Christmas list. This is part two of episode number 42 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie Spring Breakers. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Go away. We don't want you here. If this is your first time listening to the show, basically, this is the program on Film Week Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one, or at least after you've seen the movie. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening right now and go check out part one of our episode on Spring Breakers. I'm not going to bother repeating uh, the basics of the plot. I'm just going to assume that if you're listening to, to this episode, you've seen the movie. And before we really dive into our discussion, here's another clip. Who are you? My name's Aileen. My real name's Al, but truth be told, I ain't from this planet, y'all. Alien? Who are you? My name's Aileen. My real name's Al, but truth be told, I ain't from this planet, y'all. Alien? They call me. Why are you here? I saw y'all in there. They like nice people. Thought maybe I'd bail you out. Why? I know. Come on, y'all. Why act suspicious? Get in. Where are we going? Go wherever you all want. Cotty. Got the right idea? Come on. I'll be your chauffeur. You all can play Beyonce. All right, Monica. Let's talk about Spring Breakers. My first question to you, what is going on in this movie? What do you make of this film? So much. Is this a perpetuation of the same pro-party, pro objectification of women is it it's a celebration of those impulses like we've seen in so many movies these past few years or is there something else going on here it is so much more than just the first five minutes like if people really get lost within just oh this is pure exploitation then they're not going to appreciate what comes after one interpretation is that everything that transpires afterwards, the whole falling into the crime scene and that kind of stuff, is a sort of proof that spring break does not, in fact, last forever, and that that lifestyle is not sustainable. It destroys you. But does it, though? Because at the end, the ending, I think, is going to divide yes. people. At the end, let's just go ahead and spoil it and get it out of the way, the two girls that are left basically 
kill these drug dealers and take all the money and then drive off into the Mm -hmm. sunset back to school, back to real life. And that's it. This is just this fun little adventure that they've had that has somehow prepared them for the real Mm -hmm. world. And they they can put it behind them and just move on. Which brings me to the interpretation of how race is depicted on the film. Oh, okay, we can dive into yeah. that now. Well, if you since want we're to. all like doing theories right now, sure. So these girls, when you see all the scenes of Spring Break, um, it's mostly dominated by white actors and actresses, um, mostly, and like the scene is very much of a typical college like frat scene, in that there's it doesn't seem like there's very much diversity at all, even though this is Florida. Um, up until right. a point where Alien comes into the picture and brings them to, um, like a sort of gambling hall, pool hall or so. And that's the first time that you actually see more than two or three black or brown people in the scene. And that's the first time where one of the girls leaves. Cause now she's gotten too scared. Right. Yeah. So that was like, oh, wait a minute. That, that was kind of awkward. And then it continues. Well, before that even, um, when the girls are bragging about how they got the money to go on spring break, they keep doting on the fact that they uh, stuck up a black patron in the diner. And that's the most of the time where the camera spends. It's like them pointing a spray-painted gun to this guy's head. It was just, you know, he's eating his dinner or whatnot, and they held up the store, or they held up the diner. And then you get uh, to... The whole Archie alien plot. He has like a drive by and shoots one of the girls, and that's when she gets too scared and leaves. So right. then there's retaliation. But like you said, the two girls walk out, basically scot free, back to the school or so, and they go and they they kill all the black all the gangsters. black gangsters somehow in bikinis and don't even get shot once. But that's beside the point. Right. And I kind of saw it as almost an interpretation of the double standard of the justice system. Now we're getting mad deep. What do you What do you mean? If this was a crime perpetrated by, well, uh, Archie, he got retaliated against. And these girls are basically going to get away with this. It's implied that they're going to, you know, go back and have normal life after this, um, even though they committed this horrible crime, they're not even going to be implicated because they're not the usual suspects. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're saying that maybe if these girls weren't white, they would not be able to do what they Yeah, do if they weren't that. girls, because girls are usually not the perpetrator of violence, and if they weren't white, which the criminal justice system tends to persecute more black and brown people. You're saying if, if they were black men, they would be suspect number yeah. one. Okay. I, I can agree with you there. I'm not sure to what extent that... But that's the beauty of Spring Breakers, because it's so open. It's not f- spoon-feeding you what it all means. Right. Is that we could walk away with two different things. See, the interesting racial element of Spring Breakers, to me, is that Harmony Corinne basically... He basically brings in blackface mm. at the end of the film. With the black lights? With the black lights, yes. When the, when the when the final two girls when they go and they're killing all these gangsters, the way the it's a, an incredible use of lighting. The way they are yeah. lit, they look black. Yeah. 
And it took me, it, it's, I, I, I was kind of shaken. Like when I first saw it, I was like, wait, 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 are, is that, are those the same girls? Mm-hmm. Wait, what, but they don't look the way they did before. What's happening? Yeah. And it's really kind of jarring. So some people have hypothesized that Harmony Corinne is, that is trying to illustrate how blackness is often associated with crime. And how, if you want to interpret Spring Breakers as a dream or as a fantasy, and, and I certainly think that's a valid interpretation, that in this abstract dream, you know, the perpetrators of violence are going to be black. Mm-hmm. In this case, they're literally painted black by the lighting. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, and I, I don't know if I can call that racist mm-hmm. <laughs> or not. Because typically people think of blackface and they think that's horrible and that's racist. I'm I'm not sure <laughs> in this case. Another um, theory that I've heard is how this is a co-optation of what is considered in the popular media to be the black experience or black culture. Right. So then these girls come in from an otherwise relatively normal background and dive into that viewpoint. And let's not forget that James Franco's character Alien is based on, to a certain extent, is based on this actual guy named Riff Raff, who's basically this white rapper slash thug who acts really gangsta, and he he's acting out what the perception of blackness is mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And in some ways, that makes him hilarious. And in some, and, and there's, but at the same time, that also sort of makes him a little bit scary mm-hmm. and a little bit sinister. And so there's this interesting dichotomy that I think Harmony Corinne is, is playing with here about that idea of being a thug or being a gangster mm-hmm. and how if you're not normally associated with that, that can be funny. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, if you actually believe that and are trying to embody those characteristics, that can be pretty scary. Yeah. Did you walk away from the film feeling like we're supposed to take that ending literally? The They get away with this ending? Yes, and they basically just ride off into the sunset. Because, the, the, I mean, there have been some interesting pieces of writing focused on that. And, and I think... I believe it was Richard Brody, his review basically posited that the entire thing is a celebration of spring break as this time where our natural impulses can just come out. There's this, there's almost this survival of the fittest aspect of it where you go to spring break you live this crazy, you, you have this crazy time, maybe you even kill some people, and then suddenly you're an adult, and you go back to the real world, and spring break has prepared you for real life. Yeah. Now you're now hard. hard. You know, now now you can you can tackle the world, and you're, you're ready to, to be an adult. So he interpreted the ending literally, almost as if Harmony Corinne is saying, yes, this is great, 
they went and killed all these people and now they're ready for life. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but it's certainly an interesting thought. Yeah, I love all that. The fact that there's these thoughts and these theories and these discussions happening, I love it. I mean, that's when was the last time a movie made us do that? What, Django? <laughs> right. <laughs> whether whether or not the depictions of race were something or nothing or what? It, it, it's interesting because I think, I, I would argue that Harmony Corinne is trying to critique this lifestyle and all this debauchery and all of this sin that's that's happening in the film. That it's a fantasy. But, well, at the same time, to a certain extent, he is celebrating it. He is perpetuating it. I mean, the camera is so voyeuristic. Oh, it's totally the male gaze. <laughs> Absolutely. There were no shots of men junk. <laughs> no. I mean, it's just lingering shots on boobs and crotches and and the, like the cinematography rather explicitly just slices up <laughs> these women and just objectifies them. Like there's there's um a shot where the four leads are just standing in a pool talking and the camera <laughs> will just dip under the surface and cut off their heads yeah. where they're literally decapitated by the frame mm-hmm. and we're just looking at their their naked torsos yeah. and then there's another shot where like one of them is lying naked in the shower and again it's like the head's chopped off and it's just it, it's it, basically presenting them as literal slabs of flesh mm-hmm you know, there for the audience to, to, to just ogle. It was, I didn't know what to think of that, though, because there was a part of me that was like, clearly he's aware of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's critiquing it, but at the same time, he's encouraging the audience to participate. I don't know if it's participate or he's coming from the viewpoint that the audience understands, because this is what we're bombarded with. This is the images, and this is what... We recognize as, oh, this is sexualized, and this is, this is what we're supposed to feel when we're, you know, watching beer get poured down a girl's shirt. Right. It, it, it's interesting because I, I, I heard someone on Twitter say that the presentation of sex and nudity in Spring Breakers is similar to the presentation of violence in funny games. Like, it's there, and it's being presented the way it is to make a specific point. Mm-hmm. However, I think what Harmony Corinne is doing in Spring Breakers is the, it's it, it, in a weird way, it's the opposite of what Michael Haneke does in Funny Games. You know, in Funny Games, Michael Haneke will intentionally deprive you of, I guess you could say, the quote-unquote satisfaction mm-hmm. of watching violence or watching blood. You know, there will be there will be these these incredible buildups to these really violent moments and then he won't let you see the violence. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he's goading you and trying to make you beg for blood, mm-hmm. you know, and then at the same time make you realize, wait, why am, why do I want to see this? Yeah. Why do I want to see people die? Harmony Corinne here in Spring Breakers, he's doing the opposite. He isn't denying you, you know, what you want at all. He's just throwing it at you non Stop! It's 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 just like n- nudity overload. Yeah, 
here. And there's a part of me that thinks maybe the entire point is just to really make you uncomfortable. Well, there's even... <laughs> like, eventually, eventually it's just kind of like, whoa, why is... There's just so much nudity and so much debauchery going on here. Why do I want this? <laughs> there's even one point that I think almost... It almost crossed the line, but the camera cuts out, is during that big debauchery there's a scene with i think it's rachel's character she's crazy drunk and it's just like on the floor teasing guys and she's surrounded by none of her friends is literally just a bunch of jocks who are catcalling her and she's daring them like oh i bet you can't do me and that kind of stuff right it was almost triggering how so afraid i was i was if like if that scene had gone the where I was afraid it was going to go, I probably would have walked out. That would have been, like, the line for me. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, the guys are just standing around literally saying, treat her like a stripper. Yeah. Th th there are so many moments like that where it'll suddenly turn really sinister. Yeah. Like, for example, we first meet James Franco's character, mm -hmm. and he's just this goofy guy, and he's saying these crazy things, and you're laughing, and then there's that scene when he confronts Faith mm -hmm. and she tells him that she wants to leave and suddenly he is just this really scary misogynistic figure where he's just like, he can't stop caressing her yeah. and he keeps getting closer and he just is telling her how much she loves her and she's his dream girl and she's like crying mm -hmm. and, and, and it was really disturbing mm -hmm. So it, it, it's, it seems to me the way the, – what I took away from that is that, you know, the first half of the movie or the first third, Harmony Corinne spends all that time just blasting you with nonstop nudity and nonstop sex and partying. And then suddenly it's like, wait, wait, wait. This is actually really creepy. Yeah. Like this could in a heartbeat turn really scary and really tragic. Yeah. And for a second, I thought the movie was going to go that route, that suddenly it was going to become this horror film where these women were just going to suddenly be abused. And and that's what I was expecting. But then Corinne doesn't do that either. Because yeah. we've seen that before. I feel like I feel like that would be easy. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen we've seen that in movies like Piranha 3D. <laughs> Okay, where people go on spring break and party and then get punished yeah. <laughs> for their debauchery. Mm -hmm. This is this is a new animal entirely. Mm -hmm. You have these characters who suddenly wake up from the fantasy. You've got Faith who realizes this is not good. I have to get out of here. You've got Rachel Corinne's character who gets shot, and that's the point for her when it's suddenly like, wait, 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 this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And then the movie continues, and you realize that the other two girls, they're still in the fantasy. Mm -hmm. And they're not they are not seeing what's there under the surface. Mm -hmm. No, and then I guess there's also the theory that you kind of touched upon in the first part about the whole disposable culture, which also plays into how the women are depicted, they're objectified, they're treated as... They're, you know, essentially seen as just... You have... Little signs of pop culture hidden everywhere, 
you have like My Little Pony making appearances on television and on the ski mask. You have the Britney Spears song that comes in. That was fascinating to me because it was illustrating that dichotomy to me and that paradox of how if you want you want to talk about the male gaze or male fetishes or desires or whatever, there's that desire for women to be quote-unquote adult and to be sexual and to be slutty, but then at the same time, they're also kids. And you've got that idea that these girls are immature, they're children, they don't fully understand the world, and yet at the same time, that's part of what makes them quote-unquote slutty or or attractive Mm -hmm. to certain men. Yeah. You know, is that they, they are, they're like children and how just how creepy that is, mm-hmm. just that that divide between really, really childlike in certain ways with the teddy bear backpacks yeah, and whatnot. But they're going to wear the bikinis and they're going to wear the pants that say DTF mm-hmm. and they're going to go do body shots and do drugs. And, and it was fascinating to me to see how that was depicted. Well, I. Back with the whole disposable culture, I thought it was really interesting. Someone had actually written their review as Spring Breakers was nothing but a bunch of memes, which is why you have a lot of catchphrases repeated over and over, a lot of imagery repeated over and over and cycled through. And a lot of it is the kind of things that you would find on the Internet, My Little Pony, Britney Spears, and naked women's bodies included. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just been like a fun old field day <laughs> figuring out this movie. You're right about that idea of it's portraying women as objects and that idea of something being disposable. So much emphasis here is placed on just the idea of stuff mm-hmm. and materialism. The opening act of the movie, three of the girls rob the chicken shack because they just want money. They need money. They want to go have fun with their money. And then that comes back at the end when it's just like they just want the stuff. They want to steal the money Mm -hmm. and live it up. And that sentiment is perfectly embodied by Alien, Mm -hmm. who keeps repeating, uh, well, I'll I'll use the family-friendly phrase, look at my stuff. (laughs) You know, I've got all this stuff here. Just look at it. Look at it. This stuff is what matters. This stuff is what makes what is what matters to me it it makes me important it 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 gives me value and that to me was one of the most tragic aspects of the film the fact that these the people in this movie have nothing outside of their stuff and their bodies basically yeah. and their desire to party what did you think of the voiceovers in this movie again most of them were repeated over and over so sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't I thought the phone call to, well, for Selena Gomez's character, Faith's phone call to her grandmother was, you know, obviously highly ironic because while she's making this great, oh, you should come here, we should come here next year and, you know, spend the time out in St. Pete, Florida. You'll like it. It's really pretty. And I, you know, I'm finding myself here as well, you know, she's doing these really crazy parties and event that eventually lead to her arrest. <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> right. The voiceovers were fascinating to me because we're watching all of this unfold and then laid over top of it are these voiceovers saying things like, this is it. This is perfect. This is our dream. This is what I want. This is like, I feel perfect. I feel it's, it's almost like these characters 
feel as though by just completely letting themselves go, they're becoming enlightened. This is this is how things are supposed to be. At one point, one of them even calls it a spiritual experience. Yeah. Which almost made me burst out laughing. It's like, because I think right before that, there's a shot of three of the girls like squatting and peeing on the sidewalk <laughs> or something. And, and then there's a voiceover saying that this is a, like a spiritual experience for them. Yeah. It just was fascinating to me how this, this, this movie is positing this idea that spring break has become almost a religion. It's become this way of life. It's become this thing that you have to do. You have to experience it. You have to just leave all the rules behind. Mm -hmm. That's another reason I found the ending so fascinating because it, it, it's like the, the those two girls that are left at the end, they're the true zealots. They're the true believers, yeah. you know, and it, it, it's, it's the movie seems to be saying, well, if you really believe mm -hmm that there shouldn't be any rules and that you should be allowed to party. It's really not much of a leap to go from all of this sex and all these drugs to murder. It all really comes from the same impulse, just that desire to be quote unquote free and to have more stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. So what, so what do you think, Monica? Are to, is, is the new generation just, a few steps away from becoming a generation of mass murderers. No, because they would have to get the movie first. <laughs> they, I think there's someone out there that's putting a list of all the 15-year-olds that are like, oh my gosh, Frame Breakers is the worst movie ever. I can't believe they did that to Vanessa Hudgens. Tear, tear, tear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, pass. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Monica, because I know you're really into gender issues yes is this movie making a feminist statement at the end it is not in it's theory. not okay, hold, on, but... hold on and the feminist ter like sense of the term where i think it's a lot more about like power dynamics there's a clear victor there is a clear oppressor that goes on and a lot of feminist theory is rooted in taking away that dichotomy of oppressor and victim so that obviously fails there but the fact that they're and, and it's kind of hard to say whether or not the two surviving girls are really the empowered ones i actually identified more with the girls that left because they stood up for what they believed in oh absolutely to, to me it, it was strange because when you first find out that faith mm -hmm. you know quite literally has faith and she's a religious person yeah. it's sort of played almost for laughs yeah like, here's this, here's oh, this goody two-shoes yeah. who's not going to go along with the party. Yeah. And she's the first to leave. And she's the first to leave. But at, when she leaves, suddenly the movie is kind of, at least I was sort of rooting for her. Like, yeah, I'm so glad that yeah. you had that religious background or some sort of standard, some sort mm -hmm. of moral code that allowed you to see what was happening and it's not here. only just the moral code, it's just... Being able to stand up for that belief, and right. not just to go with the status quo, not to, to go with pop culture, not to go with the societal pressures that says, oh, you have to live it up. It's spring break. Come on, take your top off. You know, right. she books that. And even uh, Rachel Corden's character, who then, you know, also is like, you know what? Here's my limit. I'm out. And I do like that it didn't punish the girls, per se, for 
any sort of like the promiscuity point of really what got them was the drugs. <laughs> Right. Well, the the reason I ask if it's a feminist film is because there. Okay, there's this great scene about halfway through the movie that's going to shock a lot of people, mm-hmm. where I believe it's the two girls that ultimately end up staying. Yes, I was actually going to bring that up. I think I know what you're. <laughs> where they make Alien James Franco, they make him fillet his guns, yep. and they basically say, "Hey, we could just kill you and steal all your stuff." Yeah. And that's this would all be ours, and he kind of goes with it and laughs it off. And that that was just a fascinating scene that I think is interesting for two reasons. First, it sort of hints at this this link between sex and violence. Yes. That I think the movie is really trying to hit on. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it foreshadows the ending when that is actually what they do. They yeah. do decide to just kill him and steal all the stuff. Yeah. So in many ways, they're the ones manipulating him. They are the empowered ones that ultimately turn around and kill all the men mm-hmm. and take their stuff. And essentially they're playing the game, like they play alien along in order to do so, which could be argued as like, oh, using your feminine wiles to get what you want. But at the same time, I was wondering if that was not some, like rooted in some sort of homophobia. I was kind of curious because they... Well, it is. I, I mean, to a certain extent, I think they're... Because they're like, oh, he's not going to do it. And then, you know, James Franco goes at it with much enthusiasm. So then... Right. Well, I, I think they're sort of using... And it's totally the power dynamic of the male is the oppressor. The male is the dominant one. The dominant one, one. yeah. Yeah. So they make him do this thing that is, you know, considered gay or considered effeminate. Yeah. And he goes along with it. And gun as a penis. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't forget the Freudian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's actually what's in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Is that a gun in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Yeah. It, it, the, the whole, it was just very interesting. I, to a certain extent, felt like they were supposed to be feminist figures because they're existing in this world where they're constantly objectified, mm-hmm. where they constantly have to use their sexuality and their bodies to get ahead. And they make everybody think that they're just these poor, naive saps who are going to be manipulated. And then ultimately, they're the ones that are controlling everything. Not only do they kill James Franco, they, I mean, you could argue they, they break his heart. <laughs> He's not, they're not his true love. <laughs> he does say they're his soulmates. <laughs> Compare this to Oz the Great and Powerful, where he's the one that makes the witches fall in love with him, and then he breaks their hearts. This time, he's the one that's that's falling in love with these people who are actually manipulating him. So I think, in a weird way, the movie, it, it, it's objectifying women constantly, mm-hmm. but at the same time, its female characters are sort of empowered. Yeah, in their own special way. So then the question is, are, are Rachel Corinne and Selena Gomez, are, th- are their characters admirable? Or are they not as empowered? Are they people that were just objectified and they were the, the, the victims and they never really had the upper hand? And ultimately, they had to drop out of the game. They had to quit. They couldn't handle this this game of survival of the fittest. Yeah. Well, again, with that power dynamic that I told you about, um, just because you are the dominant one doesn't mean that that's a good thing. Right. I think even one of the... It's also Gloria Steinem's birthday, BT-dubs. But, <laughs> side <laughs> note, um, like one of the fascinating things that I read about her is that there's 
she was having a conversation with someone that she was mentoring, and she actually said that she wants to equal the playing field for even teachers and students, because it's always seen as the teacher is the dominant one, and the students are submissive. It's a one-way street. And she wanted to say, no, the teacher should be learning from her students as well, whether it's how to right. apply a teaching style or filling in questions that, you know, no other person in the class may have. Teachers should be, it should be a two-way road, not just the one going right. that way. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it is late. But no, like, um, again, with the whole theory, I don't think, the other girls were any less empowered because they didn't go this one particular route. Um, you could say that there's more than one way to being a feminist and that either you're a great ass kicker or, you know, you stand up for what you believe in. Okay. That's, that, that's fair. I think one of the great things about the movie is again, that you can read it both ways. To me, that that's a little bit more true to life. Mm -hmm. People aren't just empowered or not empowered. And we don't have one character that comes into our lives and tell us the whole moral of the story. Right. <laughs> that's, my, right. that's a pet peeve of mine. In some ways we're good and in some ways we're bad. And in, in, in some ways we're empowered and in some ways uh, we're totally subjugated. Yeah. And, and I think the movie does a good job of making you think, which is it? Mm -hmm. You know, like, should I be rooting for the Selena Gomez character or should I feel sorry for her that she didn't come out on top? She didn't have to kill anyone. She didn't have to kill anyone, but it, but then is the movie arguing that she's lost, that she's not as adequately prepared for life or whatever? Spring Break in this movie is it, – it, it's like this rite of passage that these characters and their voiceovers seem to argue, you know, this is what's going to prepare us for life. And then the ending of the movie sort of confirms that. Like, yes, these two girls have won. They're ready for life. They're going to – they're rich, and now they're going to go back to the real world and be successful. Because they've learned what how how the world works. So is it an MBA program? Sure. Yes. <laughs> murder, murder, kill, kill. <laughs> the movie is filled with entrepreneurs. I mean, James Franco is running his own business selling drugs. <laughs> Indeed. You know, <laughs> he's got he's got a competitor. <laughs> he's trying to take his business, and then these th this new crowd, these girls show up, and they basically destroy them both. <laughs> And say, no, we want your business. Yeah. They get their startup from <laughs> unsavory yes. methods. The, the last thing I want to talk about is something you mentioned earlier, the, the, the idea of uh, pop culture mm -hmm. and how pop culture is a part of this film. There are so many moments that explicitly reference parts of pop culture, whether it's the Britney Spears song or, you know, the movie Scarface that gets brought up. Or there's even a scene near the beginning when they're getting ready to to rob the chicken shack where they're basically just saying, okay, pretend it's a movie. Yeah. It's like a video game. It's Yeah, pretend it's a video game. Yeah. And that, to me, was also very interesting because, is, you know, is the movie arguing that this generation is so infused with pop culture that it's becoming harder and harder to separate pop culture from real life. Like now more than ever, they're just meshed together. Mm -hmm. And is it real life or is it a movie? Is Spring Breakers a fantasy or is he trying to critique real life? It, it's hard to tell because they're so intertwined. Yeah. Or, 
reliance on pop culture in our real life. Right. So what extent does pop culture influence how we live our lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that whole thing was fascinating to me. I mean, what it, what was your ultimate takeaway from how the film depicts pop culture? I guess I kind of saw it the way I mentioned before, that it's all disposable. That the pop culture is disposable? That it's meant for consumption. It's meant for consumption, but it seemed to me that, like, pop culture... What's in and what's out. We are in spring break now, and you won't be in spring break, you know, say next year. You graduated. Yeah, but, but at the same time, pop, pop culture seemed to me to be, like, the foundation of who these characters were. Like, these characters are so superficial. Yeah. And so, so empty to a certain extent. You know, they have, they have nothing outside of stuff mm-hmm. and pop culture. I mean, they just keep returning to, to Britney Spears. Or Scarface. To sum up how, how they feel and who they are mm-hmm. as people. So that was just, that was really fascinating to me. That idea that we've reached a point where you are your, the pop culture you consume, essentially. Mm. Yeah. That has become our religion. That has become our essence of who we are as people. I mean, that's how I choose my friends. <laughs> 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 who here watched Legends of the Hidden Temple when they were five? Okay, great. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of tragic. <laughs> oh, what's that? You you don't know that Britney Spears ballad? Well, I guess we can't be friends. Oh, you were Spice Girl, girl. Ew, <laughs> gross. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what Harmony Corinne is getting at, but he he does seem to be pointing out that there there is this link between pop culture and real life that we can't deny. Mm-hmm. That it's become a part of our identity. It's become a part of our identity. You can yell all you want about how movie gun violence doesn't affect real life gun violence but in an era in which more and more people are becoming defined by pop culture is that really the case you know and it it certainly brings up an interesting question of how much is real life being affected by the movies we watch whether we realize it or not sure you know yeah, you got that. <laughs> I mean, and, and just the fact that it can't be denied that culture and film and art does affect real life, at least in small ways, just based on the fact that people are going to walk away quoting the movie. And that's going to become part of their life for a few days I mean, even, after their movie. My whole thing is I can't separate how I see sociologically how film is made. Because art is never made in a vacuum. It comes from a place. It comes from someone's frame of mind, their privilege, right. their viewpoint, their biases, whatever it may be. It's, it comes from the creator and the many hands that touch the film from the screenplay, cinematography to the director. Right. And so, I mean, that that's the fascinating paradox to me, you know, that film and art, it is a reflection of culture mm-hmm. because it is being produced by individuals that exist in culture in a certain place and time right and yet also it's mass entertainment Mm -hmm. that millions of people are going to consume so at the same time it is also creating culture Mm -hmm. yeah spring breakers just kind of really got me thinking about what is that that link you know between the movies we watch the music we listen to and how that defines us as individuals and and as a culture you know is Mm -hmm. is there a line between the two or 
is it, you know, more of a gray zone? Again, spring breakers. <laughs> spring break. Spring break forever. Yeah, we'll be talking about it longer than actual spring break. Oh, man. And just the the whole thing with the, the re- repeated phrase, spring break forever, spring break forever. I mean, there's a, a point in the voiceover when it, be, it, it becomes like a religious mantra mm-hmm. that just keeps being repeated over and over and over. I was just really struck by how this movie is presenting spring break as a way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it, it's not just a, one to two week period when you go crazy it's everything (laughs) okay anything else you want to say about spring breakers go see it i will agree with you go see it i will say based on interviews i've read with harmony corinne Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if i would if he actually came out and said what he was going for with spring breakers that i would like him or i would agree with him i have it in my interview he's like i just put it out there man (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, that's the thing that he says about everything. Like, Harmony Korean... I, I read it in another interview with Badass Digest or so. He's like, yeah, I'm just putting those images out there. You get what you want. Like, Harmony Korean, when I read it, like, he sounds like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. But when I read interviews with him, he just comes off as this really pretentious oh, come on. artist. A quote-unquote artist who's like, I just put things out there, man, and I don't analyze it. I don't, like, think about it. I mean, Terrence Malick, David Lynch, that there's a whole class of filmmakers that... Yeah, and I tend not to, like their movies most of the time oh well um <laughs> boo <laughs> but, but okay but see it's interesting because there's a part of me that looks at a movie like spring breakers and is and is thinking in the back of my mind well you're dealing with so many interesting issues here you know you're dealing with issues of sexism and race and power and how people behave and the human condition how can you not tackle a subject like that without having something to say or having an opinion. And yet I think the the thing about Spring Breakers is yet is that there's enough there mm-hmm. to chew on. Yeah. That I don't think it matters necessarily what Corinne's actual motivation was or if he's actually trying to say anything. I think there's stuff that the film is there's there's things that this film is doing and things that it is communicating. Mm-hmm. Better there, whether he intended it to be or not. Yeah, fair. <laughs> and it, it, it's weird because the ending of the movie is a little bit ambiguous, and I wasn't quite sure how to interpret the film. And in some cases, that can really irritate me. Mm-hmm. Like if it's the case of Tree of Life or a lot of David Lynch stuff, sometimes I walk away feeling like, oh, this is just some pretentious guy being vague just to be vague and just Mm -hmm. to be provocative just because he can. Whereas for some reason, that did not bother me as much in Spring Breakers. I felt like after Spring Breakers, the way I imagine a lot of people felt after watching The Tree of Light for The Master or something like that, where where it's like there's, there's stuff going on here and I can grasp enough of it that I want to watch it again. And I want to keep returning to it and trying to figure out, you know, exactly what is going on here. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people will be annoyed by Spring Breakers. Yeah. I was not. I was completely enthralled. 
Oh, I was way entertained, and I, I love that ambiguous stuff, so I'm okay. Side note, have you seen Upstream Color yet? I have not. Okay, that would be another point of is that Is that movie going to annoy me? Oh, it's going to annoy the shit out of you. <laughs> because I've, I've heard mixed things. I've heard some people say that the movie is just completely nonsensical, and then I've heard other people say, oh, no, it totally makes sense if you just think about it. And it's totally easy to follow, and it's fine to figure out what, what yeah, okay. the director is trying to communicate. <laughs> so I don't know. We I've seen it see. twice, so and I, I still feel like I don't have a grasp on everything. Oh, no. Is, is Upstream Color going to be this year's Tree of Life? Oh, it's so malicky. I told <laughs> oh, no. I told Shade Crew through his face. You'll, you'll hear it. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm not a Malik person. But Shame. His we'll movie see. was pretty good, too. I saw To the Wonder. Oh, I've heard terrible things about To the Wonder. Even from people that like Malik, I've heard it's I've heard it's not very good. Yeah, no, I prefer Tree of Life by a long shot, but it's okay. not it's not the worst thing that could have come out of that. Alright, well I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our episode on Spring Breakers. Be sure to tune in next week when we will be discussing another incredibly deep and layered work mm-hmm. by an established auteur. That's right. G.I. Joe Retaliation. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'm ready. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at com or comment on the website at com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes, so if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online on Twitter at mcastymovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website, at BOFCA.com. You can find some of my writing at FilmGeekRadio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message, let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. You can also find me admiring all my stuff, my shorts, my designer t-shirts, my Calvin Klein Escape, and my Calvin Klein B, my nunchucks, all that. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema, especially if you're snorting it off a young lady's horse. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.